Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, Tesla reported results last night. I think they're probably best characterized as a mixed bag, but there was drama on the conference call, as there typically is with Tesla, when it was announced that the CFO, surprisingly, is going to depart the company. Uh, the stock is down about 1% uh, this morning in trading. Joining us to kind of dig through what's going on with Tesla is Gordon Johnson. Gordon is a managing director, uh, research analyst covering alternative energy, metals, and mining and equipment from Vertical Group. Uh, he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios here in New York. Gordon, thanks for joining us. Let me just start with the CFO news. It just right. seems like I just remember him coming back for a second stint as CFO, and now he's leaving. What's going on? Right. So I think that when you combine with the CFO leaving, which was unexpected, um, you've had four uh, vice presidents of finance leave since 2017. You had the chief accounting officer at Tesla leave um, with just a month on the job unexpectedly. Um, and now you have the CFO leaving. And effectively, the new CFO uh, was just promoted to uh, vice president in December and has no specific accounting experience. I, I think this is a huge loss of institutional knowledge um, and a concern, again, given the um, finance departures we've seen at Tesla more recently. So, Gordon, you're you're a longtime Tesla bear, right? right? And yep. you are uh, you maintain a seventy two dollar per share price target, which is right. a huge decline from where we are today. Right. And you said you would be aggressively adding to any Tesla short positions here. Correct. Bond markets don't agree with you because the bonds are actually going up, and usually right. the bond markets is a smart money. Why are they wrong? Right. So I think the reason they're wrong is because Tesla reported a cash balance of $3.7 However, if you look at their interest income in the quarter and divide it by that cash balance, you get an annualized return of roughly 8 0.8%. Whereas in the, in the fourth quarter, the three-year treasury bill returned 2.6%. So either they're the most inefficient managers of cash we've ever seen, which I think is highly unlikely, or their cash balance is significantly less than what they're reporting. So I think that's why the bond investors are reacting um, uh, positively, but we're still quite concerned they're Wait. not going to be able to pay off that, uh, that convertible uh, in March. Okay, hold on a second. So you're saying that they're, they're massaging the numbers? Is that the idea? I don't want to say they're massaging the numbers, but I think what they do is they delay uh, paying their suppliers until days after the quarter to allow them to report a cash balance um, at the end of the quarter that is much higher than the average cash balance. And you can see this in Q3, Q2, Q1, um, and, and it, it hasn't always been the case. So um, again, either they're the, the, the worst managers of cash, worse than you know a retail investor who could just park their money in three-month treasury bills, or their cash balance is significantly less than what they're reporting. We think it's the latter. Well, that sounds a little bit like massaging the numbers to me. Um, I think let's let's move on. So. How about the underlying fundamentals? Um, is there, right. you know, what did you see in a quarter last night uh, to give you a sense that you know they are remain challenged to meet some of their either their production goals and or profit goals? Right. So keep in mind, we just updated our bottom up model and we projected a gap uh, EPS number of seventy nine cents. They came in at seventy eight. The street was at over a dollar. Think about this. Tesla built three years of backlog. 
via the Model 3. And like the Sports Illustrated article said today, it was a bait-and-switch strategy. They said it was going to be $27,500, be fully autonomous, uh, meaning you could literally crawl in the back sleep and drive coast to coast, and you're going to have free supercharging. None of that's true. The car costs $55,000 out the gate. Um, clearly, I don't think anybody in their right mind is going to uh, allow Tesla to drive them around without uh, paying attention. There's been 52 deaths reported either associated indirectly or directly with Tesla, and clearly the supercharging costs money. So what they did in Q3 is they took that huge moat of backlog and basically in Q3 and 4 sold cars to the best part of that backlog, i.e. the guys who are willing to pay the most. So if you look to what they're guiding for next year, for this year rather, 2019, they're saying 360 to 400,000 cars uh, sold. If you look at their Q4 deliveries, multiply that by four and you use the low end of that guidance, they're actually guiding sales, uh, unit sales down in 2019, despite the fact that on Q4 numbers, they're trading at a 90 times forward PE multiple yeah. when other car companies traded six to five, six to, uh, five to six times. We, we think there's big risk in the, in, in the stock. Big okay. risk. It, certainly, I think most would agree with you that there's big risk in the stock just based on how much it's been swinging around. But mm-hmm. Gordon, I'm wondering, let's say Tesla is able to pay off its convertible bond. Yep. Uh, do, well, is your thesis wrong? I mean, is that is that going to be enough of uh, prolonging any sort of liquidity event that Tesla can keep on going, trying to make it work? No, I mean, everybody says if they're able to raise debt, you, you know, that's going to be great for the stock. Look, they burn a lot of money. Um, keep in mind, in. In, in, in the fourth quarter, they had huge demand pulling in the United States because their tax credit got cut in half, 1119. In, in, in the Netherlands, right, European sales of Tesla in 2018 were up 6%. If you assume that that's because Netherlands sales were up 158%. Germany was down 40. Spain was down like roughly 20. The UK was down roughly 30. The point is the Netherlands had a big tax incentive for, uh, for Tesla cars that got cut January 1, 2019, we think Netherlands sales are going to be down 80% in Q1. So the point is, they've had a big benefit in Q4. That benefit is over. Um, I think they're guiding to huge decline. We think uh, the street numbers for Q1 on revenue are roughly $1.5 billion too high, given Tesla's guidance. Um, and, and you have real competition coming in in the back half this year. So I think they go back into losing money in Q1. I think basically that's their uh, that's effectively their guidance. I think they lose more money in Q2 and more money in Q3 and 4. Um, so if you give a company money who just perpetually burns cash, is that a good thing? I don't think so. So I, I, I just think their business model was flawed. I think Elon Musk's tried to uh, change the way you manufacture cars from the car companies that had done it before. It hasn't worked, and I think the costs are too high. I think they're going to burn a lot of money this year. Gordon Johnson, thank you so much for being with us. Gordon Johnson, Managing Director uh, focused on alternative energy metals and mining and equipment uh, spaces for the Vertical Group in New York, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Well, we are right in the midst of tech earnings. We had Facebook last night with a blowout quarter. That stock is up 13%. Microsoft, the generally inline quarter, stocks off a little bit today. And of course, uh, after the close tonight, we have Amazon. So to help us kind of wade through all things tech, we have David Garrity joining us. David's the chief market strategist at Laidlaw & Company. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. David, thank you for joining us. Paul, thank you. 
Let's start with Facebook. Wow, what a quarter. I think, uh, I, I guess it's just people saying, I guess this thing is not going to be rolled over by the regulators. Well, one would argue that there are signs of life in terms of Facebook, and one has to bear in mind also that looking at the fourth quarter, uh, like other online internet companies, there is a bump in the calendar year-end. Um, and certainly they saw that. But you know, clearly against the negative news flow seen over the course of 2018, um, you know, there are signs that people now think that there's alive and well and an all clear can be sounded on Facebook. But one has to consider the news that came out just recently within the last day or so that Apple had decided to basically remove Facebook from the Apple App Store, which brings up the basic point that while people may be concerned about public sector regulators, when it comes down to looking at the structure of the technology industry, where you have companies like Facebook who depend upon others' operating system platforms, whether it's Android from Google or whether it's iOS from Apple, Facebook really is in a world that other people shit set the conditions for. And from that standpoint, Facebook, for lack of a better term, has to depend on the kindness of strangers. Okay. Uh, can you just give us a sense of how important this really is? I mean, if Apple removes Facebook from its app store, can people not buy or not uh, download the Facebook app on their iPhones? Is that what this is basically saying, or they just have to work a little harder to do so? People can still work a little bit harder, go through their web browsers, but the issue is, if there are things that are made more difficult for consumers over time, it certainly serves to dampen adoption in that regard. And I would argue that if we start looking at what Apple's been saying in terms of the company's policy towards upholding individuals' rights to data privacy... Is that the reason why they did this? Certainly, because what was happening in the case of Facebook is that they were essentially misusing the App Store platform to go out and to pay um, Facebook subscribers or Facebook users, uh, you know, $20 to basically take down all of their data. And this was not something that Apple had been made aware of when this was being put up on the Apple App Store. And again, I would just go back and say that, you know, Tim Cook out of the technology sector CEOs has been fairly straightforward and, and, and upright in regarding data privacy as being an individual right. And certainly the company in its actions, Apple, is showing that they're going to be taking Facebook on in this well, it's regard. It's interesting because, you know, Jeff Zuckerberg on the earnings call last night seemed to suggest that after a year of hard work at the company and investment in personnel to monitor content and privacy and investments in technology, that the company had, in his mind, kind of turned the corner on what was a very difficult time for the company um, and that they've gotten a handle on it and they're ready to move forward and go back to being the innovative and focus on the business. Do you think the company has turned the corner from that regulatory overhang type of perspective? Well, I mean, those are wonderful comments that go into an earnings conference call script. But when we start coming up against factors, and it's here really more in the case of Apple, not to sort of focus in too hard on this, but dealing with public sector regulators is one thing. You know, obviously, it takes time for them to act. They can be slow. But when you have a private sector partner, and I don't know to what extent you could really could say Apple is a partner. It just happens to be that Facebook is operating off of an iOS platform in part to get to the subscriber base that Apple has. If a private sector company decides to act and clearly act quickly, this can be something that I think has far more negative impact potentially going down the road than necessarily something that might come out of the public sector. But don't diminish the fact that the public sector itself may be poised from the regulatory standpoint to impose significant fines relative to Facebook. 
All right. So, David, uh, it sounds like you have a lot of bearishness around the edges about Facebook, and yet this is not reflected at all in the shares today. Shares of Facebook are up. They're surging. They're up now 13 percent, up the biggest one day gain since January 2016. So do you think that the shares should be much lower than where they are today? Or do you think that these are all just potential headwinds that investors need to be thinking about even as uh, they go full speed into Facebook shares? I mean, clearly, if we look back over the last two months with the market having sold off going into Christmas, Facebook down at $125 was probably a buy going into the earnings. I would say that what we're seeing here with Facebook is a relief rally. Uh, if we go back and look at the high on the stock up of over 220 back in July, uh, I would say that that's probably a level we're still not going to get back to. Uh, you know, clearly this is a trade. Uh, and from that standpoint, I see Facebook is still being in a situation where they don't really control their own destiny given the operations and how they're structured, depending upon these other technology platforms. I mean, just to raise an issue and segue over towards Amazon, if we start looking at Amazon having gone through and looked at various sectors to go into to basically take on advertising, advertising revenues for Amazon is a growth area. And if Amazon has far better access to and insight into what consumers are actually doing, Amazon can sort of say, look, we re respect people's privacy in terms of their data. We're not out basically stepping on all sorts of people's toes to get to that data. We can get through it with far less complication. They can go in and say, we'll provide you with the targeting that Facebook provides. And guess what? We'll do it at a better price. So you, you, I'm glad you brought up Amazon. Of course, they report earnings after the close tonight. One of the issues in the digital advertising space, one of the concerns, I think, from Madison Avenue and from big advertisers is that it's effectively a duopoly between Google and Facebook. And they've been dying for a third party, whether it's Snapchat or Twitter or whatever. And uh, But now it appears that Amazon is really starting to focus on the advertising side of the business. Um, and they're actually putting up huge growth rates in ad spending. Do you think that Amazon can, in effect, become that third major platform for advertisers in the digital space? I would say that Amazon you know, has the potential to displace Facebook in terms of the significant role to be played in the online advertising market. And if I were a Facebook investor, I would certainly be concerned about that. You know, Amazon clearly has a number of different channels for growth um, beyond their traditional retail, which clearly is going to benefit from the year-end holiday shopping season. And certainly if we look at cloud computing, Amazon Web Services, the number one leading platform, add on advertising relative to this. And certainly the prospects for Amazon, I would say, as an investment, certainly superior, I would say, on a relative basis to the likes of a Facebook. So just real quick on Amazon, what do you think is going to be the biggest surprise today? I think the biggest surprise may very well continue to be sort of the growth that we've been seeing in terms of cloud services. I think the numbers we had out of Microsoft last night were very favorable in that regard. And uh, this is certainly a transition that continues on a secular basis. You know, granted, some of the impact we saw with regards to Microsoft is there might have been some slowing in terms of some of the data server activities, things that had impacted Intel previously. But obviously, you know, Amazon's not exposed to that. David Garrity, always wonderful having you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. David Garrity, of course, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 Studios, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw and Company uh, in New York. Facebook shares up 13% on the heels of that revenue beat and, frankly, earnings per share beat all around, uh, giving people a sense of relief, as David said.
There is a big question mark when it comes to Venezuela and its huge oil reserves. When will it actually start to begin pumping those reserves out and putting them into circulation? Joining us now to talk about this and its effect on global oil prices is Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting, also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, Dr. Ellen Wald, thank you so much for being with us. So let's start with the effect that so far the uh, the political turmoil in Venezuela has had on oil markets. It sent the price up. Does this make sense to you? It does make sense to me because Venezuela's oil, even though right now Venezuela actually isn't producing all that much, I think its numbers in December were something like 1.17 million barrels per day, which is very low for a country like Venezuela. But Venezuela produces a heavy, sour crude oil, type of crude oil that's very much in demand and is not really uh, being produced as much right now. We get a lot of light crude coming from the United States, and so refineries are really looking for the type of oil Venezuela produces. And that's probably why we're seeing oil prices rise just somewhat uh, right now. Well, Dr. Wald, Venezuela has one of the largest reserves on the planet with roughly 300 billion barrels. Can they even get it out of the ground? Well, that is the big question. And Venezuela's oil uh, is actually much more difficult to extract than, say, Saudi Arabia's oil. So even though Saudi Arabia doesn't have as quite as much oil as Venezuela, it produces a lot more, their infrastructure is much better, and it's much easier to extract. But Venezuela could be producing a lot more than it is. In fact, uh, it's produced as much as over 3 million barrels per day. So it's really not living up to its potential now. The question is, right now, they're facing a lot of problems with their infrastructure. Uh, Their people are are starving and unable to work. And the company is essentially failing. So say uh, we got rid of all the political trouble and they got a new government that was really willing to support the company in what it needs, just how fast could they ramp up production? And that is the question. I think that they actually could do a lot to get that oil flowing uh, very quickly, perhaps not as much as as 3 million barrels a day, but they certainly could increase possibly almost to 2, and that would really help their economy get out of the terrible state it's in. So let's say there is regime change in the next couple of months. Let's say Juan Guaido does take over. Nicolas Maduro is forced out of power. This is a huge conjecture, obviously. Uh, Let's just say that that happens. If Venezuela could get their oil production back online, how much would that flood the market? What would that do to the price of oil? I think it would definitely push prices down. Um, you know, they're still part of OPEC. They're still, as far as we know, you know, OPEC doesn't seem to have any intention to um, get rid of its production uh, cuts right now. But Venezuela is allowed to produce under that up to, I think, 1.97 million barrels a day. And they really would do well to to push themselves up to that limit if they can, as quickly as they can. So we definitely could see if, if they did get that oil on the market, it would push prices down. So, Dr. Wald, what role, if any, do you think uh, Russia and China are playing or can play in Venezuela, um, whether it's on the political side or more about, you know, their interest in the oil uh, reserves uh, in Venezuela. What role do you think they are playing and maybe could play going forward? 
Well, this this is a big question, and particularly with regards to Russia, because Russia's loaned them uh, loaned them money, and in fact, Rosneft, the, one of the Russian oil companies, actually uh, has a lien on Citgo for its loan. So basically, if if PDVSA does not pay the interest on its loans to Russia, then Russia can actually take control of 49.9% of uh, the Citgo refining company in the United States, uh, according to they, – they hold that as collateral. Now, of course, the question would be, will the United States permit that? Uh, they do have measures they can take uh, to say, no, we're not going to allow that on national security grounds, but it really could uh, bring this crisis almost into a, a U.S.-Russia uh, issue as opposed to just a Venezuela-Russia-China issue. Now, China and Russia are definitely going to do all they can to support Venezuela. Uh, first, they want their money. They've loaned Venezuela money. They, they want Venezuela to pay that interest. If a new government comes into power, that government could say, you know what, those loans were made under the Maduro government, and that government was illegitimate, and so we're not going to pay you. So they definitely have a vested interest in keeping the Maduro government in power. Okay, uh, just real quick here. I'm glad that you went there because that was going to be my next question. Given the fact that China and Russia would like to see Nicolas Maduro remain in charge, how much does that make it unlikely that we do see a regime change? Well, I really think right now things are up in the air. It does seem unlikely given the fact that there have been attempts in the past and Maduro has uh, you know, has rebuffed them. He does seem to have control over the army. And really, when it comes to regime change, when it comes to revolution like this, it does seem that control over the army is a, can be a deciding factor. That being said, it's very difficult to predict revolution. Um, we did a very bad job of it in uh, with regards to Iran in 1979. So I don't want to say that it's not possible. Dr. Ellen Wall, uh, President, Transversal Consulting, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, she is a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. Thank you so much for joining us to discuss what is going on in Venezuela and, uh, you know, the instability there on the political side and what it means for their vast energy reserves? Again, over 300 million barrels in the ground in Venezuela, the largest reserve on the planet, clearly a significant a driver of global oil prices from a supply demand uh, perspective. How is this going to play out politically? How is this going to play out? Uh, we will keep our watch. The official manufacturing data that came out of China overnight showed a bit of stabilization, but the numbers that we're getting out of Chinese companies are pretty bleak. Just to give you a picture of the more than 2,400 mainland listed firms that have announced preliminary uh, figures for their earnings or issued guidance this season. Uh, nearly 400 of them said they'll post a loss. There has been disappointment after disappointment. Joining us now to talk about the Chinese economy and what we're learning about it is Leland Miller, chief executive of China Beige Book International, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Leland, I am so glad to have you here. What is the big takeaway for you as you parse through some of these numbers that we see from corporations? Well, the big takeaway is that the, the numbers that markets are looking at, by and large, for macro, the GDP numbers, some of the manufacturing PMI numbers, 
look weak, but they don't look very weak. And as a result, they're not reflective of what's actually happening across the Chinese economy right now. There is not mild weakness. There's not the same weakness that you saw earlier in 2018, which I think was relatively mild weakness. You have much more substantial weakness right now. And it's it's a problem because it's not being uh, it's not being understood by investors. They're just seeing the same trends continue. But but these are not the same trends. They're so, worse. So Leland, I think the market feels, I, I think the market probably would say it's probably discounting in certainly a slowing Chinese economy. And if they were to put a number on it in terms of GDP, it might be six or six and a half percent. Yes, that's down from 10. We recognize that. We're trying to price that into our models. What do you think the real underlying growth of the Chinese economy is right now? For the fourth quarter, I think it's uh, it's less than half that. It's probably around two. Uh, you know, we, we try Annualized. And, annualized. So, so we, so what we, what we try to, um, we try not to harp too much on the GDP number because GDP, of course, uh, doesn't tell most of the story. If you build a bridge, we tell the story all the time. If you build a bridge and then you tear it down and you build a bridge again, you tear it down, you build a bridge, tear it down, you can get to whatever GDP number you want. So it doesn't reflect restructuring and reform and other important parts of, of what the Chinese are doing. But the growth right now compared to what we saw earlier in 2018, 2017, substantially weaker. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's just it's the idea that it's just down a tick from 6.7 and down to 6.4, it's, just, it's, 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 a, it's a lunacy. So is this analogous to 2015? Well, we've been seeing a lot of parallels to 2015. So one of the things that we alerted clients to back in the fall was that the run-up to 2019 was looking a lot like the run-up to 2016. We were seeing a lot of the same problems. Uh, there was earlier in the year, there was a official data that suggested that maybe things were weaker and they weren't. And people got a little bit more comfortable with the fact that, that uh, you know, our, our data earlier in, tw in 2018 actually showed that some of this official data, which had, you know, 20 year lows in retail or 20 year lows in investment, whatever it was, uh, was, was, was not as, is not as bad. And so uh, earlier in the year, you, you had a slowdown, but not a substantial one. And I think it's been building up to that. And the problems we're seeing right now, the last time we saw China Beige Book data this week was first quarter 2016. So I, I think there's there's just a lot of parallels for, from, from three years ago. So Leland, as you talk to your clients and you, you suggest that they don't focus too much on that GDP number because it can in fact be manipulated by the government to a certain extent, what data is the best data to really look at to get a sense of what's going on in China? And what influences your uh, uh, estimation of a two or two and a half percent GDP growth? So what we're looking looking at very closely right now are credit data. Uh, there's a belief now, and this is it's well founded because this is the way China's worked in the past that they have downturns, but then they stimulate the economy, things get better, you know, rinse and repeat. Well, the problem right now is that China has not been uh, undergoing this credit starvation, this deleveraging, this intense deleveraging for for as long as as people think. So what we've seen in the last three quarters is actually very heavy levels of borrowing from corporates. Now, they have had a shut of finance crackdown, but you have seen some heavy levels of borrowing, and that's not being understood. So you don't just have a monetary stimulus button you could turn on in early 2019. They're already borrowing, but it's not leading to more investment. It's not helping growth. Given that, given the fact that we've seen this uh, substantial weakness, as you've been mm -hmm. saying, amid uh, an elevated level of borrowing, how much more ammunition does China have to juice growth well beyond what you think is a 2% annualized growth rate? Well, much less than I think people think. And and what we keep hearing over and over is that, well, they have fiscal stimulus. And, you know, they're about to do a tax cut that'll make Donald Trump blush. And the, the reality to fiscal stimulus is that fiscal stimulus in China doesn't really mean fiscal stimulus. They have never tried large-scale fiscal stimulus. What happened in 2009, 2010 was hybrid monetary policy because what was happening was it was infrastructure bills, 
and it was other things, lending that came out through the state banks. It did, wasn't reflected in a higher budget deficit. It was reflected in a higher monetary base. So you always have a monetary element to all everything they call fiscal. Now, corporations don't pay most of their taxes. SOEs don't pay hardly any of their taxes. And so the idea they could just cut taxes and have this massive stimulus, they can get a little bump for a quarter or two, but it's not the big, it's not the big gun that they claim they have in the background. So what fiscal stimulus means is not really tax cuts, it means more fiscal spending, and then you get back to the monetary problem. And so they're in a little bit of a, a, a difficult situation right now. They don't want to increase the monetary base, but that's how, that's the only way they know how is to, is to, is to expand credit and to build up infrastructure, uh, and they're, they're not getting much of a return on it anymore. Okay, so this weaker than even maybe the market's discounting uh, economic picture in China, how much is that influencing how you think China is approaching trade talks, not just the two days we're seeing here in Washington, but just in general, do you really believe that's pushing them and incenting them to make a deal, a, a real deal? Oh yeah, massively. Uh, it's well, not a real deal. They're not going to make a real deal because they're not being asked to make a real deal. So what they will, they want to have a trade truce so they can focus inward and fix some of the problems that are happening in the economy. Now, what what would really set things off is if these trade talks break down and you don't have a deal and Trump walks away from the table and you have this layered on top of the current weakness, you will absolutely see a crisis in China. So just real quick here, a crisis in China, if that 2% growth rate is sustained in China, what does that mean for global markets? Not good things. I mean, it, 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 <laughs> all, right. all the obvious things. So, so basically, if you're looking at at demand from China being much, much less, and you're seeing a trade war hit it overhead, um, you know, this is China's been able to counteract the tariffs that have been put on it so far. You know, they've they've depreciated the currency until very recently. They've done uh, subsidies to corporations. They're very good at this type of work. They can't counteract another tranche of 267 billion of tariffs. They can't counteract tariff rates going up to 25% on either this this past tranche or the next one. So they would be uh, in very in a very problematic situation if they were forced to try to deal with that on top of the already very low level of growth, on top of the fact that the monetary stimulus isn't being kept in reserve the way they say it is. It's already being proven not very effective. Leland Miller, wonderful having you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure. Leland Miller is Chief Executive Officer of China Beige Book International, which does get an on-the-ground read of the Chinese economy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.